there are essentially really two reasons why people hide things. Pretty simple. On the one hand, they hide things so that they aren't discovered, to keep them hidden so that they aren't found. There are a number of examples of this. Uh, I suppose that you could probably think of, of the, whether it's fact or, or fiction, the stories of pirates and plundering and their treasure. And what do they do when they find their treasure? They bury it, put together a map, the idea being that nobody else would have the map, but that map would allow them and them alone to find where they buried their hidden treasure so that nobody else could ever discover it. Perhaps on a, a more somber note, an example of things being hidden to not be found or discovered you think of the World War II era in Nazi Germany where people hid Jews and other minorities so that they wouldn't be found by the Nazis and either imprisoned or put to death. Some things are intended to be hidden so that they wouldn't be found. You might have a spot in your, your house. There are any number of items that you can buy online that, that look like a normal item, but it has a secret compartment in it. And the idea is that you put what is precious and valuable to you in that so that it would be hidden, not found by others. But then there are times where we hide things very specifically for the purpose of being found. I don't imagine that the game of hide-and-seek would probably be as popular today if none of the children ever found anybody else. Half of the fun is finding a great hiding spot, and then when you're the seeker, you get to find where people are, are hiding. You think of, of Easter morning and, and Easter egg hunts and, and hidden Easter baskets. Uh, parents aren't trying to, to cause trauma to their kids by hiding those eggs in baskets, never to be discovered, but to give them the joy of finding them. Maybe you've enjoyed the, the hobby geocaching and, and you have searched for, use your phone and coordinates and clues to track down certain hidden things. Again, they're, they're hidden to be found and to be discovered. So which is it this morning as we wrap up this series and our final paradox when we look at uh, what God has laid out for us in this Mount of Transfiguration, focusing on his glory, which is visibly hidden. So which is it? Is, is his glory hidden or, or is it visible? Is it something that God wants us to see or, or to remain hidden? And, and maybe even adding to the confusion a little bit is the fact that the Bible speaks about both ways when it talks of God's glory. Sometimes being open and obvious and evident for everybody to see, and other times being hidden and needing to be revealed. Psalm 97, God tells us that the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Everyone sees his glory. The prophet Isaiah has, though, a little bit different picture. We're told the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it's something that needs to be revealed, even though everybody will see it eventually. And Jesus himself, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So sometimes we see that, that glory spoken of as being evident and other times hidden. In, in the first case, first of all, we have to understand that God's glory is multifaceted. There are different ways to understand God's glory. So when the psalmist described his glory that was evident to everybody, we acknowledge and we know what he means. You, you live and you breathe and you have your, your being and you discover the, the marvels of this world and we are compelled to give glory to someone outside of ourselves. We acknowledge that being God who brought all things into existence. But you might even acknowledge or recognize that, that even the unbeliever or the atheist feels compelled to do so. They'll just personify. They'll say, it's nature or it's evolution. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it amazing? But that even speaks to the need to give glory to something because we are so enamored, so amazed by the glory of creation. Then he saw other ways that God had revealed or made known his glory that was reflected in each of our, our readings today. The first reading where Moses had this unique relationship with the Lord, able to go up on the mountain or later in the tabernacle and speak to the Lord face to face, which is not something that, that your average ordinary human being was able to do and, and live to tell about it. In the Old Testament, actually, uh, the, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around him. Just in case, in, in the glory of the Lord, he would die, they would be able to drag his dead body out. They recognize sinful man has no place standing in front of a holy, righteous God. Moses was a very unique exception. And all of Israel knew that because when he was done speaking to the Lord, he came out and his face was, was radiant. So it was obvious God's glory was manifest in a very special, unique way through, through Moses in the Old Testament. And then our second reading, Paul talked about glory as well. And he used the picture of a veil being the distinction between how somebody can really see God's glory or not, or it being hidden from them. And what Paul was talking about in simplest terms is really the Old and the New Covenants. The Old Covenant that God had established with Israel was based on his law. He said, yes, I will be your God. You just have to keep all of these rules that I give you. And there was nothing wrong with the covenant. It was glorious because it showed God's holiness. It showed his perfection. But Paul says that paled in comparison to the new covenants that God established, not based on our ability to keep the law, not based on our obedience, but based on his promise, based on his grace, based on, on the delivery of salvation that would come through Jesus. And Paul then uses that picture. He says, some look at God's word and they see only the old covenant. They see only the law as a way to get right with God. And, and for them, that veil is there. They're never going to see the full glory of God. But he says only through faith in Jesus is that veil lifted and suddenly we can see God's relationship with us is based on his grace, his compassion, his mercy, not based on the law. And then, of course, you had another manifestation of God's glory in our gospel. The one that was recorded in Luke this morning where we saw the, those unique, the inner circle of disciples, those three that were with Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And though they had witnessed many impressive feats and miracles that Jesus had performed, none of them really showed this side of Jesus that Luke recorded for us. Catch this glory once again. We're told that in verse 29 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. 
Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They saw a side of Jesus they had never witnessed before. You can hardly imagine how bright it, it must have been in his presence. Brighter than the sun, both his face and, and his, his clothing emanating light. And then on top of that, God wasn't done yet manifesting his glory. There were the heroes of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, speaking with Jesus right in their presence, talking about his departure, his, his death. And God's glory wasn't even done yet. In fact, that was just the build-up to really the exclamation point as, as Luke makes it clear to us. The best was yet to come. As the, as the individuals were enveloped by this cloud, they were afraid as they entered it and heard a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. The voice of God the Father Himself expressing his approval for the Son. This is the one. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one on whom this new covenant, the better covenant, is based. One can hardly imagine the glory that they were experiencing. And then, just like that, after the Father had spoken, the disciples looked up again and... nothing. Just Jesus. No more, no more light emanating from his face or his clothing. No Moses. No Elijah. No more words from the Father. Just Jesus and the disciples. Imagine how wide that gap must have felt between just experiencing Jesus' glory at this high point on this Mount of Transfiguration to then shortly thereafter the disciples would see the, the total other end of things as that same glorious Savior would look anything but glorious, being beaten and bloodied and crucified. Sure didn't appear as if there was any glory at that time. And Jesus' church might feel that way today. Where, where is the glory today? Why don't we get to have those experiences like the disciples did on top of the Mount of Transfiguration? What has Jesus really given to his church today that is glorious? Well, what has he given to us? He's given us, he's given us baptism. Okay. Pretty, pretty plain baptismal font. Nothing fancy or ostentatious about it. Just plain and, and simple. When you think about it, whether it's an infant or an adult brought to the, to the font and the words that are spoken, there's really no other spectacular rites, nothing really amazing that a, a person witnesses. In fact, if, if you ask an observer or a bystander who wasn't familiar with what was going on and they witnessed a baptism, I'm sure that glorious probably would not be the description they would, would use. Well, he's given us the Lord's Supper. Pretty plain, really. Anything all that spectacular or, again, glorious about a little bland wafer 
and wine that isn't top shelf, nothing special about it. In fact, really looks nothing different than, than if we were lined up for refreshments after the service. We, we line up and we, we take our, our bread and we take our, our wine and we go back to our seats. There's no secret handshakes. There's no other rituals that we are required to go through. We just take and eat and we drink it. And I don't know that anybody would observe that and say, wow, that is glorious to the bystander or the outsider. And then, of course, we have, we have this. We have the Word, which is central to our worship as we gather together in God's house. Notice that, that we don't just have historically one reading from God's Word, but three readings from the Word of God. And in fact, every song that we sing, not just the hymns, but those songs that are a part of the liturgical worship called canticles, do you know that those are all actually based on words from Scripture? So from the beginning to the end, really when we gather, all we're doing is speaking and singing the Word of God. And yet, as you look around and you observe that, you don't see any hands waving in the air. You don't see any emotional cries. You don't see anybody dropping to the ground and shaking or convulsing. In fact, if you were to describe what you saw in Lutheran worship, you'd probably use words like stoic, serious, let's be honest, sleepy, glorious. Where is the glory that, that those disciples witnessed on top of the Mount of Transfiguration? See, that's just it. Is, is it there? Are, are we doing something wrong? Is, is God hidden that from us? Uh, are we not following the right structure? Has he removed it from us? What, what is our understanding of what appears to be a lack of, of glory? And the fact of the matter is that, that God says to us, yes, my glory is right there, visibly hidden in plain sight. In fact, my glory is wrapped up in all of those things that I just mentioned. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Word of God. Visibly hidden in all of those things that we call the means of grace or the tools or instruments by which God extends to us His forgiveness and His grace and all of the spiritual blessings that He longs for us to have. But how is it when they look so plain and they look so ordinary? Well, what is it that each and every one of them has in common? There's one common denominator. Jesus. Jesus gave us baptism. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. The Bible tells us that Jesus himself is the Word. And he preached and he gives us the Word today as well. And so the real power behind those is, is Jesus. And if we take that a, a step further, it's not just Jesus, it's what Jesus did as I just reminded uh, the children during their message, it's what Jesus did on the cross. That is where God reveals his glory. The cross is what gives baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Word, its power. You take away the cross, you remove the cross from the equation, and you have just a simple splash of water, not baptism. But with the cross, baptism brings life and forgiveness and salvation. You take away the cross and the Lord's Supper is, is merely a simple meal that we could find anywhere. But with the cross, it is body and blood given for the forgiveness of sins. You take away the cross and even the Word of God itself is nothing but a broken promise, a tragedy really, 
that isn't even worth our time. But with the cross, it is the most powerful thing on the planet. And it is where God has chosen to hide his glory visibly for everyone to see. For everyone. Even stoic, serious, sleepy Lutherans. Even those of us who are not always really excited about his glory. Even for the times that we are more enamored with the world's idea of what is, what is glorious, championships and gold medals and the things that the world praises. Still, the glory of the cross is that, that God has come to us and, and as we look on that, without the cross, without the faith to receive what Jesus did there, we would look and we would just see another common criminal as justice was being carried out. But, but faith allows us to see the cross differently, to see the sinless Son of God, our Savior, the one who came to bear the, the brunt of all of our sins, the one who came to be abandoned by the Father who spoke to him on the Mount of Transfiguration, to be forsaken and damned by him, to suffer hell so that not a single other soul would ever have to. The cross is where God has chosen to, to make his glory known. And here's the beauty of it. Because of the way that God has chosen to visibly reveal or visibly hide his, his glory right in the cross, we can gaze on it, we can ponder, we can reflect on that without fear. Not like in the Old Testament where they had to be, and rightfully so, terrified about the prospect of seeing God, a holy, righteous God, with their own eyes. But because of the cross, that fear is, no longer exists. It's gone. The gap that, that existed between God's holiness and perfection and man's sin is no longer there because of the cross. And so now the cross allows us as we go into this new season of Lent, a season of penitence, a season of reflection, it allows us to see our baptism for what it is. It allows us to, to run to Jesus for his body and blood and the assurance that we are truly forgiven. It encourages us to seek and seize that glory in the Word of God as we gather around it on Sundays and then on Wednesdays starting this week and then in our homes and in our personal lives. To realize that God says, this is where my glory is and I won't remove it from you. It's at your disposal. You can gaze on it. You can reflect on it. You can ponder it. You can rejoice in it without limit and without fear whatsoever. So my encouragement to you as we shift out of Epiphany into Lent is to do that very thing during these next 40 days that begin this Ash Wednesday. To take advantage of God's glory, visibly hidden for you, for me, for all. Visibly hidden in Jesus Christ and his cross. Amen.